This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be talking to real estate consultant Jonathan Miller about the latest developments in the housing market. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including why designers are flocking to the new Threads app, an AI fabric generator, and how Gen Z's embrace of dupes is impacting the industry. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Homes executive editor Fred Nicholaus. Hi, Fred. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing? Getting ready for vacation, are you? <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, I'm also uh, scouring Amazon for Prime Day deals. <laughs> Jeff Bezos needs a new spaceship. What are you buying, Dennis? I, I wondered about that. Darn, if, if only you and I hadn't had that big screen TV conversation a while <laughs> back, I could have been cleaning up today. Should have held off. Yeah, it's funny. My my younger millennial self would have been looking for like clothes and sunglasses. I'm currently ironing a Theragun to uh, <laughs> to help my aches and pains. But uh... they're they're pressing those guns. So I mean that that looks like a good deal. You're not alone there. So well, before we get to the news, let's take a look back at uh, Monday's episode. Uh, interior designer, cafe owner, <laughs> kitchen company entrepreneur Gene Stouffer. That was a great one. Daytime Emmy nominee, right? Right. I, forgot, I mean, of and and all of this just in the last few years. That's what's so amazing about her story. I know it's the the rare like late career success in interior design, and the episode was uh, sort of the the maternal pep talk that you, you didn't <laughs> know that you needed. Sort of gentle but firm. I particularly loved how, you know, she works with her family so much, you know, her daughter and her son really revolutionized the firm. And, you know, you asked her, so like, you know, is it difficult to work with your family and have hard conversations? And she's like, oh, I hired a CEO to, to, <laughs> to tell them what to do, which I thought was a very, very smart way to work with one's family. Bringing someone else in to scold your children for you. Yes. I, I think that is a great management tool and more family business should be applying that. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. No, a fun one. Okay. We're going to get to the news in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Forehands, a leading source of design inspiration for interior designers, architects, retailers, and more. Forehands will introduce over 350 new styles this summer for every room in the home. See their new collection plus top-selling pieces at their Las Vegas Summer Market showroom from July 29th through August 3rd. Follow them on Instagram at Forehands Furniture for daily inspiration or visit forehands.com slash B-O-H to become a trade customer. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash B-O-H. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home. And I'm so glad you're here. Our team works tirelessly to bring you the industry news you need to know. We're also talking about what it feels like to run a design firm. And you can find those conversations on my podcast, Trade Tales, which features heart-to-hearts with designers getting real about the challenges of creative entrepreneurship. The show is proof that there's no one right way to grow your business. Some weeks, the focus is on improving systems and processes. Others, it's about how sometimes getting out of your own way is what it truly takes to spring ahead. No matter the topic, we're taking a close look at how to build a better design business. And I hope you'll join us. Tune in to Trade Tales every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
Okay, and we're back. Uh, first up on the docket, Threads Mania. So <laughs> last Thursday, Meta launched its new app called Threads, the the Twitter killer, uh, and it's uh, it's meant to be a big competitor for Twitter. And so far, it seems like it is successful <laughs> in uh, doing that. Hundred million users in five days. Fred, I know it's very popular with the designers. What do you think? It's kind of amazing because you know part of the appeal of the app is it's, it's such a short hop, skip, and a jump from Instagram over. So so many designers are on it. You know, Kelly Wurstler was. Off showing off her workout routines on it, you know, Philip Jeffries is on it. Like it's it's a very designer centric platform. Designers seem to be uh, jumping on it very quickly, which is kind of cool to see. And why do you think that is? Well, I think it kind of comes at a weird time for Instagram, right? Because you know, for ten years, Instagram has been this incredible engine to drive so much business to designers. So many people have made their career basically on Instagram, but. You know, we hear over and over again that at this point, the algorithm is kind of turned against the design industry. It's a lot harder to get engagement on your content. A lot of people are leaving for TikTok. And so I think there's a lot of hunger out there for people for something new. And it's so easy to go from one to the other. That's sort of the the whole appeal of it. And I think that designers were just excited to try something new at kind of a lull for their their platform of choice. What, what did you think? Well, it's funny because I remember, and it was just a few years ago, when the common thinking and the advice was, no, no, you need to be on all of these platforms. You need to have Twitter going and you need to have Instagram. And then you saw everybody just slowly stop using Twitter and eventually take those logos off their off their site, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. oh, no, that was a mistake. In part because Twitter got a little mean, a little edgy, but but also because who has something to say every day like that, that Twitter was sort of demanding? And, and so people just <laughs> went towards images, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, images are like the natural currency of the design industry. So it makes sense. I was sort of surprised to see them all make the jump over to text. But it's also just, you know, designers are they're pretty funny. I was kind of blown away <laughs> by how quickly like designers were better at this new Twitter thing than I was. I'm supposed to be a writer. So that was a, a little bit of a a humbling moment but uh, i don't know it's interesting it's really cool i'm I, one question i sort of have about it is is this going to be like clubhouse where it's something that people jump onto embrace use really intensely for a couple months and then just sort of you know leave behind as they see that it's not necessarily doing anything for their business it's hard when it's not a slow build and it and it's just this overnight sensation like it is now it's hard for me to imagine how does it keep up this momentum and everybody's talking about it and everyone's sort of discussing how quickly it got here and again what's its real purpose and what's it really doing for people <laughs> you're a skeptic <laughs> sustainability skeptic thread skeptic well you have you have far more followers than me and you haven't even threaded yet can't believe this well i mean i just i'm always so curious and i and i thought it was so interesting the way companies wanted to be clear that they were on there and i and I see so many people who just want to look as though, of course, I'm here. Of course, I'm up on the latest technology and using it right away. Don't you see? Yeah. And and obviously, there's a big part of that. That's why I wonder, again, much like sustainability, it's going to have to really prove its value to people, I think, for it to remain uh, the, this white hot force that it is right now, I think. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think the same mechanics that pushed people away from Twitter and the design industry are still there, right? You're still in danger of, you know, threading the wrong thing that turns off a client or a business partner. That's still a real risk. And so I do think that people might uh, eventually make their way back to the safety of, of Instagram and images there. But, you know, I don't know. The Instagram black hole is very real. I do think there's a jonesing for something new. And at least for the time being, this this appears to be it. So see you guys on threads. <laughs> well, uh, I completely agree, and I'm and I'm loving your Threads personality so far, Fred. So, I, uh, my Threads I, personality is younger, about ten years younger. You know, that's how I felt. <laughs> yeah. I felt like this was younger, Fred. You yeah. know, and uh, and uh, I love it. I, I'm I'm going for it. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna jump over now to scare a lot of people by talking about <laughs> an AI fabric designer, Fred. Yep, artificial intelligence is passing the bar. <laughs> It's writing code, it's doing customer service for IKEA, and now it's designing fabric. So I I did a story about this pair of entrepreneurs out of the UK who have built this tool called Fabric Genie. Uh, And essentially what it allows you to do is input a few prompts like, you know, red flowers and you get back a pattern with working repeats. That's kind of the magic of it, right? Is that it's a a pattern you can actually produce at scale. And if you like it, you can order a swatch or yardage for 27 bucks a yard, uh, which is digitally printed on a cotton linen blend. Um, what do you think? Did you take a look at it, Dennis? I did. I spent some time with it when you first told me you were working on the story a while back. And I mean, again, it's one of these things that, oh my goodness, look how good this is right now. And this is really early, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It does produce like startlingly good designs. I mean, they are, you know, like all artificial intelligence, what it does is it takes, you know, millions and millions of patterns and you input a prompt and it kind of comes together with a, I guess an average is the best way to put it of all those pre-existing designs. So it's not going to come up with something new, but it comes up with a pretty darn good facsimile (laughs) of like basic fabric patterns. I try, you know, I ran it through a few different paces, like a toile, a floral chintz, and it it basically came up with stuff that would not look out of place in in many companies' uh, books. So I don't know. It's impressive, uh, uh, even at this early stage. No, agreed. And and this is just a little tiny company that's working on this. And uh, one can only imagine. I mean, I do think it's important to talk about the limitations here, right? Like, first of all, it's all digital printing. So you can't do like a AI designed woven. Or if you were to do that, it would be a lot more complicated to produce. The other part that's kind of a limitation is just that like, once you generate an image, you can't make small fine tune changes. Like, let's say you, de- right. you develop like this really beautiful twelve, but you want to change one thing about it. You can't really do that. You kind of have to start over. So... It's really impressive, but I do wonder if at the end of the day, this is this is really going to replace an actual textile designer. I don't know. That's the big question for me. Well, interestingly, and we were just having this conversation with Sana Baker from the Textile Eye about this moment in time with digital printing where it has crossed over and it has also gotten really good. And so for this technology to coincide with digital printing's capabilities, getting meaningfully better than they were even just a year or two ago, uh, again, is is un, unnerving, unsettling. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, this this isn't, does this replace some textile designer or does this replace uh, original design? No, but wow, this looks like this could be a business for someone who's just throwing stuff out there and seeing if there's an audience for it. Yeah, it's funny. Like one of the things that the guys who built it told me is that what people like to do, of course, is, you know, type in the weirdest stuff possible. You know, one of one of the designs was, you know, come up with a fabric that's 
Theresa May surrounded by cheese, which was you know, not something I imagined going into production anytime soon, but was kind of a fun little thing. I don't know. Part of me just feels like, isn't there enough fabric out there already? Like, aren't there enough great, like, humans doing this stuff? Like, is there really a market for this? Are designers really going to use this? Don't they want to design their own fabrics? You know, that, that's, the, that's the part that I don't quite get. Well, and that's where I hear Tim Butcher from Fromental saying, sure, we can do this, but should we do this? Yes. <laughs> Probably not, right? <laughs> like, well, when it, when it comes we to have this Theresa May, yes, exactly. <laughs> Ter- Theresa comes, May yeah. in Brie, right? Yeah. Like, maybe not. Maybe don't do Theresa May in Brie, I say. But but I, I do think, to your point, the fact that it can do crazy stuff will be amusing for people, I think, for a time. And that's the niche that I could see this filling. And, and I think uh, all those people who like to wear crazy ties or do crazy <laughs> patterns, right? Yes, there's, right. There's that, Look out, there's Pierre Frey. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Your crazy tie market is about to go away. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's why I don't think we want to hold this up as a big threat, but it is, it's engaging. And I think some people will have fun with it. And, and so we'll, so we'll see, uh, where, where it goes. But, uh, moving on to, to an area where apparently people are having far less fun and, uh, and are suddenly feeling sad in their homes, a new study coming out about how HGTV is making homes boring and its <laughs> its homeowners sad as a result of seemingly dumbing down their homes to have them ready for resale and this this sort of sameness in the aesthetic and and sort of trying to standardize this look and and feel and HGTV tells you this is what you what you need to do. I don't know, Fred, this is similar to a conversation we were having recently, yes? Yes, right. We were talking a couple weeks ago about how Zillow reported that a white kitchen can hurt your home's value by $612, whereas <laughs> charcoal gray can increase it. But yeah, it, it's it's a sort of funny commoditization of design choices. But, you know, this, this study, I think, was shared by every interior designer I follow on Instagram and now <laughs> threads. This is a very this is a very uh, popular opinion. Of course, like designers have long complained about how HGTV gives, you know, clients the false expectation that their house can be completely made over in three days for $3,000. And now we have a scientific study that proves it also makes you sad. So I think this was certainly uh, welcomed by designers. I, I do think there's a lot to this, right? Though the, the article talks about this idea of the market reflected gaze, which basically mm. means that when you're really aware of what the market wants, then you get confused and you think that it's what you want or you make choices around what you think the market wants as opposed to your own choices. And, you know, it's not just HGTV. I think Instagram has done this. I think Pinterest has done this. I think so many designers will tell you that their clients, you know, ask for what they think is popular or ask what they think will lead to a better resale value as opposed to what they really want. And there's a lot of like unlearning and education that has to go into that. And this was, I feel like, such a big issue years back when when resale was such a, a huge issue. You wanted to be sure you maximized the value. And so you were fixing up the front of the house and you were painting the front door a certain color. And, and all of the rooms had to be devoid of your personality so they could they could move quickly. And how sad is that notion? Yeah, I mean, it, it just leads to the homogenization of taste, right, is is what all that does. I do think that there's sort of two sides to this coin, though, because as much as designers love to hate on HGTV, and I totally get that, like, 
HGTV has also made the average American so much more interested in design and so much more aware of real estate and excited about their home. And the same goes for Pinterest and Instagram. So I, I do think this study is accurate and true. And most designers, it reflects the lived experience of most designers. But I think it's like, you know, HGTV giveth and HGTV taketh away. I, I do think there's kind of a double-edged sword for me. That's interesting. And, and I don't I don't disagree. I thought it was it was funny. I saw our friend Sophie Donaldson and former podcast guest. She posted the article and through HGTV, she just wrote, we are making our homes boring and sad. And there is an answer. And I'm pretty sure it's get Sophie's book and yes, uh, fix yeah. up your kitchen in yes. a different way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But- <laughs> yeah Sophie, Sophie basically commissioned this study. Yes. <laughs> One other exactly. kind of small detail I love from it is that, you know, it was done, uh, the article about it was done by the Washington Post and throughout it, they kept saying, HGTV declined to comment. You know, it's I can only imagine the poor HGTV PR person fielding a call from the Woodward and Bernstein de- demanding the answers. Anyway, it's a good article. It's it's a good article, and what was interesting was there are fifteen hundred and twelve comments. Wow! In, after the yeah. article, so to say that this is a hot button issue yeah. is uh, is an understatement. So a yeah. lot of people wanted to weigh in on the subject, and uh, and I saw, as you said, so many designers shared this, and uh, and there's a lot of discussion around it. As I'm certain, there's going to be a lot of discussion about this next topic as well. Let's get into the dupes, Fred. <laughs> so do you know what a dupe is, Dennis? I do know what a dupe is, and I've watched quite a few of these videos <laughs> okay. that, uh, that that Haley wrote about in her article. So. Got it. Yeah. So Haley, yeah. Our, our managing editor, wrote a great piece for us about uh, dupes. It's our feature this week. Uh, dupes are knockoffs for young people. Um, there, <laughs> there is apparently this cultural phenomenon among Gen Z shoppers uh, to not only kind of like look for knockoffs, which, you know, of course, people have done forever, but sort of to celebrate it. It's like almost like a treasure hunt. You know, it's like you, you look for your dupe, you found it. It's like a trophy. Um, and it's mostly happening in fashion, or at least that's what most of the media covers around this sort of dupe culture phenomenon. Uh, but it's in home, too. So apparently, if you look on TikTok, there are 2.4 billion results for dupe and 13.2 million results for RH dupes alone. Dennis, your thoughts? So first of all, of course, let's take time out to have a laugh about the fact that RH, the knockoff king, is now suddenly front and center to being knocked off in in the dupe world. And and the number of videos with these gleeful, as you say, designers and, and enthusiasts showing you, oh, here's the RH piece and here's the dupe that I found for hundreds of dollars less. And to your point, I mean, gleefully showing you, here's the Amazon link, here's the thing. And yes, it's a yeah. complete copy and here it is yeah <laughs> i noticed you get hard, harder and harder on rh the farther you are away from that uh, from that trip to england with uh, with all the champagne and the martinis but yeah well you um, know because in, in part because i worked for waterworks when rh came yeah. in and knocked off all the plumbing fixtures and so to me peter salak may have sold the company to them but i will never forgive them for that <laughs> and so I, it's it's impossible for me to remove knockoff and and that context when i talk about rh so yes it does as you see gets me very worked up but i just thought it was so ironic that of course all these people no. were showing yes. you right how to knock off rh pieces which now because they're climbing the luxury mountain have gotten yeah. so expensive 
expensive that someone needs to come in and knock them off for a lower price. Oh my God, it's all coming home to roost. It's dupes all the way down. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm actually, I am shocked by how normalized it is among younger people. And here I'm going to sort of out my elder millennial self, which is that, you know, I still kind of feel like a sense of shame or like, oh, I'm getting a cheaper version or, you know, I don't like a knockoff <laughs> feels weird. But if you go and see marketing aimed at Gen Z people, it's like best dupes. You know, Haven Havenly sent out an email just a couple of weeks ago that was like, check out all these great dupes we've got. And it's uh, it's interesting, you know, and, and Haley sort of like went, in, went uh, and spoke to a few professors about the issue. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, you think about like the context that Gen Z came of age. It was like during the Great Recession, you know, so they're, you know, they, they came of age in a time of extreme financial hardship, obviously for their parents, but for them as well. And then you also kind of plug in this idea of they were raised on the Internet, so they're really good at sleuthing around and they're really you know, uh, nimble online. And I think those two things together create this culture where people are just obsessed with finding these dupes and celebrating them. And, you know, it's going to be part of the culture of the home world. Well, so to that point, do you think they grow out of this? Do you think that, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's funny because I couldn't help but think of a previous generation and Sean Parker and Napster. And mm-hmm. and for those that, that don't remember, but the file sharing service where he was making it possible for you to download music for free. And uh, and eventually the music industry stepped in and said, uh, thank you very much. We'll take it from here, young man. But and, and all these musicians, of course, weren't weren't getting paid for it. And it was it was glorified for a time. But uh, later, everybody sort of felt like, oh, God, that wasn't right. Don't you think? Well, I think that's a great analogy because at the time, Napster was framed as the music executives and the labels are so greedy and they're taking your money and you should be getting this for free. But what became clear over time was that actually this was hurting the artists who were creating the music. And I think you know that allowed people to come around and uh, you know pay for music again. Although I'll be honest, you know artists and musicians are still getting screwed over. So that's that's another podcast. Right. I didn't mean to bring up yeah. a source subject for you, yes. Fred. I know. I was I know a, that yes, I was a musician in a role. in a I former guess. life, yes. and I still cash Indeed. my three dollar royalty checks every quarter. <laughs> um, but I think that a similar thing is playing out here too, right? There is this real enthusiasm around these, you know, dupes, call them knockoffs, call them whatever you want. And I think there's a big movement by brands and, you know, also makers and artisans in the industry to push back and say, look, this actually is really hurting the people who design these chairs and who design these sofas and design these fabrics. And so, you know, what, where that pushback will lead to, I don't know, but certainly uh, that is a thing that a lot of people in the industry say. And Haley spoke to uh, many of them. No, absolutely. I don't think this is an an issue to be taken lightly, is is sort of how I walk away feeling about this one. It's No, I agree. And I especially think because you think Gen Z, of course, is going to be your client in 10 years. We've got to think about how they're thinking and how they're feeling and the words they're using that feel embarrassing for me to say, like dupe. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a very serious issue. And it's also, it's complicated too, right? Because I think that like, the other side of knockoffs is that sometimes you get these big corporations that, you know, get intellectual control over something like blue checks. We saw that with Hastings and how they sued poor Coco and Dash in Texas. And so copyrights and knockoffs, it's it's a very complicated, very sticky issue. And I'm, I'm really curious to see uh, how this plays out in the years ahead. I'm sure we'll we'll see more lawsuits and things like that. And uh, rest assured, we'll be covering them on businessfoam.com. <laughs> Absolutely. Look for more lawsuits. Yes, yes that's yeah. uh, that's without that's without a doubt. 
All right, that's it for the news, but there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com, including advice from Sean Lowe about how to pass your firm on to your team when you retire, and a roundup of the latest showroom openings. We're going to get to my interview with Jonathan Miller in a minute, but first, a quick break. Forehand's newest collection of home furnishings and decor debuts this month and will include over 350 new pieces, inspired by everything from fluid forms to structural lines. Plus, don't miss their new leather upholstery, sustainably tanned using eucalyptus leaves. To join their trade program and shop over 6,000 styles, visit forehands.com boh. There's never an order minimum, and you'll enjoy even bigger discounts the more you spend. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash B-O-H. Hi, it's Caitlin again. Are you ready to build a better design business? Join hundreds of design professionals in Business of Homes membership community, B-O-H Insider, to access exclusive reporting and industry analysis that will keep you competitive and connected as you grow your firm. Membership includes complimentary access to weekly educational workshops with industry experts, a subscription to BOH Magazine, and a directory of skilled trades across the country. Insiders also get discounts on BOH's industry-leading job board, which is especially helpful when you're ready to expand your team. And later this year, insiders will begin to receive exclusive invitations to private field trips to unique destinations that unlock creativity and community. Learn more and join us today at businessofhome.com slash Insider. My guest today is Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel. And Jonathan, thank you so much for making the time to join me. Oh, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. It's great to be speaking with you again. And I was just saying to you that some listeners might not have heard the last show you were on. So let's explain for listeners briefly all the many things that you do, Jonathan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I am a real estate appraiser by trade. Uh, I started an appraisal company called Miller Samuel, and we appraise primarily residential property in the New York City metro area. And then uh, I am also a market analyst. Uh, I cover for the real estate company, Douglas Solomon Real Estate. I cover about 50 housing markets nationwide. In my spare time, I also teach market analysis at Columbia University. So you mentioned in your last housing note newsletter that you that you send out, which is a, which is a really great newsletter, and I encourage people Thank to you. subscribe because it's it's just full of uh, interesting information and also some some dad jokes and some humor in there as Absolutely. well. I can't help but notice. Um, <laughs> but you but you called out the fact that in in Manhattan, this we've we've had this discussion in the past about these cash buyers. Right. And you called out the fact that now more than two thirds of the transactions are cash buyers. And Bloomberg ran a piece about it, I know, and trying to suggest that this is showing you what's happening in the luxury space. What what, what should we read into that, if anything? It's interesting because if you break out the market in Manhattan, uh, it's two thirds cash and one third finance or some sort of financing. And as you move higher in income or wealth and you purchase higher priced properties, there's a higher probability that those buyers pay cash. 
when you start getting to like five million and over, uh, sort of as a price threshold, it ends up being, uh, you know, 75, 85% of the buyers are paying cash. Cash buyers aren't as impacted by the, the spike in mortgage rates over the last year. So what you've had is a much lower decline in sales activity compared to the overall market than you have with finance buyers. Finance buyers are down about 50% and uh, cash buyers are down by about 30%. So when you sort of comes all out in the wash, it ends up being a two-third, one-third market. So many designers, because so much of our audience is interior designers, tell us, oh, my clients, mortgage rates don't affect them. They're not, they're not worried about that. To your point, they're cash buyers, they've they've got multiple homes, but we have seen a real decline, e- even when you look at those numbers, right? Yeah. If you look at just cash buyers in the Manhattan market specifically, mm. and actually these numbers are pretty in terms of percentages are pretty similar for Miami. Uh, is that there's still been about a 30% drop in activity year over year. It's just that mortgage buyers or buyers using mortgages, there's been a 55% drop in activity. So a better way to say it is that it's not that mortgage rates don't matter. They're less of an obstacle than they are for someone that's depending on financing. It absolutely impacts cash buyers, uh, just not as much. Right. The other issue is. So for a time, the bond market seemed to not be taking the Federal Reserve very seriously. And then suddenly, this last meeting, I don't know why the market decided, oh my gosh, he really is serious. He really is going to keep rates higher for longer, which is what he's been saying all along. And and suddenly- Mortgage rates are are back well over seven percent all of a sudden, and Correct. and that seems to have caught people by surprise a little bit. Even though he's been telling you this all along, what's your what's your sense of that? Yeah, a lot of it is language. So, for example, the Fed uses words like pause, right? So when you you know in English when you say the word pause, that means that you're not going to do anything for a while, right? Pause, right. but it really was a skip where they want to do less than a 25 basis point increase. So they they skipped and then they're going to do it at the next meeting. And now they're what they're adding to that is probably a couple more because unemployment or you know employment itself is so robust. I mean, I think what people forget uh, is that the reason why rates are rising is because the economy is too strong. It's robust, yeah. which is yeah. a good environment for you know, things other than real estate. They're just trying to cool off the rocket ship, so to speak, which, you know, has had a disproportionate effect on the housing market. Yes. The important thing is we're not stopping raising rates. We're just pausing or skipping, but we fully intend to continue to raise rates because to your point, very little around us looks like it's having a meaningful slowdown other than sure we can point to some of these real estate markets where they've had right. a big drop but from a very high level right right and they've had a big drop in sales but prices are rising yes and the reason for that is there's been essentially a collapse or a severe shortage of new inventory coming into the market and so what do you get when you don't have enough supply, right? You get bidding wars and rising prices, even in an environment where mortgage rates have more than doubled over the last year. 
So if you're uh, in a housing dependent profession, it feels like a depression or recession because sales activity have gone down from unusually unsustainable highs over the last couple of years to something it's overcorrected in terms of uh, sales activities below pre-pandemic levels, Uh, but prices aren't. Prices are, you know, 15, 20, 30% higher depending on the market. So it just, it's a hard math to process. Well, and and as you were saying, I mean, the the challenge is that actual inflation looks like it has come down pretty dramatically in, in most yes. right areas that we yeah, it's, it's about four percent uh baseline seems to be hovering around four, but there's more upward pressure in front of us. So, you know, the idea of getting back to two percent seems a little ways off to me. Um, yeah, you know, the next year or two minimum. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I agree. I think that's going to be very challenging for them to to get to. And I, I hope, I hope he's not going to hold out for the two percent. I, I want him to be happy with three percent, which I think exactly we're going to get shortly. And uh, well, you know, and- it's interesting not to go too much in the weeds, but beginning in the '60s until really recently, is wages for employees has been a deflationary factor. And uh, since the pandemic, it's been an inflationary factor, meaning that people are finally getting increases in their salaries, hourly rates, uh, that they largely, the economy sort of depended on them not getting it for years. So, you know, to, to me, and I'm no Fed expert, or I'm not a <laughs> you know trained economist, but it sure seems like 2% is based on the old way of thinking and you know i i agree with you that maybe a little bit more like three as a baseline is probably more realistic to keep wages at a, a current level that they are which is i think overall it's good for the economy absolutely and we've and we've seen that and interestingly we've been talking a lot recently about the fact that on the builder side costs have gone up so dramatically in in part because of this adjustment to wages and and the workers needed more money because inflation was running so hot uh, right. but also because they were so in demand and so many of these contractors and builders could just walk off a job site and start their own business and uh, and do just fine thank you very much yep. right and I- it's it's been such a long time to your point since labor has had the upper hand and it's and it's yes. fun it's fun to see that in some yes. ways i i get what it leads to eventually but it's also feels really good to see people getting more money and 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 right. having more money to to spend and live and we saw during covid when we just gave people a bunch of money <laughs> yeah. that they right yeah yeah no I, I i think overall it's sort of good socially and good uh, economically, but um, you know, we'll see how long that continues. Um, I'm just, uh, I, I just think that you know, we've been seeing wages shrink for decades, and uh, so it, to me, it's a breath of fresh air in terms of sort of you know making people's lives better and that they they're able to spend more money in the economy. I agree. I, I think a lot of good things have come out of it. I know some people want to put a stop to it, but I. I'm 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 all for it. I'm 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 go labor. Is is that how I feel? (laughs) Uh, Right. But 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 going back to uh, so we we talked earlier about and last time you and I spoke, 
we were talking about all these incredibly hot markets, Miami, which is such a hot market, uh, but seems to be still a very hot market, right? And mm -hmm. people had relocated so many places, and we started to talk about Nashville and Texas in different ways than we ever had before. Where are we with all of that, all of these sort of regional trends? Did that did that cool down in a meaningful way? Did some people say, no, I'm going to move back to the city or did they? Well, I, you know, initially people you know, were fleeing the city because of COVID. And then that only lasted maybe three or four months. The way to think of what's happening now is still there's a migration pattern to the Sunbelt states. Uh, but... Uh, the volumes are way down because of higher rates. The, the way I like to think of it is the tether between work and home got infinitely longer to some people. However, the people that are most mobile tend to be more affluent. So as you move higher in income or net worth, you tend to be more mobile. And that's what we saw in New York, where 40% uh, of Manhattan moved out during the uh, pandemic, the other 60% couldn't. And it's been really tough to get people to come back into the office. And so that has far reaching consequences uh, to commercial real estate and to retail, uh, much less so than it does to residential. Well, so in in much the same way that that people were thinking, oh, this the Fed's not so serious about keeping rates long. So many people tried to convince themselves that the commercial real estate bomb is 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 not such a big oh no it's don't worry it's down the line and people are going to have to restructure and refinance but really i don't think you feel that way i think you feel no. like it's, it's pretty serious right oh i think i i think it's it's real and it's tangible and having just gone through an office search for new office space you know, I was one of those people that wanted to downsize because my office was empty or, mm. you know, I had people coming in. We have people are sort of our standard is three days a week. But, uh, but you know, our people are out on the go looking at property. And so our office felt empty. So I wanted to downsize. And what I found were land, a lot of landlords couldn't adjust to market conditions, meaning that they couldn't adjust downward as much as they needed to. And the reason was that they have debt on the building and they couldn't make their, you know, their finance payments. And so they're sort of hamstrung. And that's the situation we're in now where, like, if you think of commercial office space as class A, B, and C, A being the best, right. the upper half of A is not going to see much pain. It's everybody else that's going to see, you know, 25 to 50% cuts in rental rates or leasing rates. And the ones that can't adjust to that are eventually going to go, you know, the landlords are going to go under, and they're going to go into stronger hands. And so over the next five to 10 years, then you'll see, you know, uh, low, much lower leasing prices. And that'll bring a whole new cohort of people into cities that were previously priced out. I mean, cities are where a higher density of talent tends to be right and so cities aren't dead they're just they're going through a reorganization <laughs> i think you the way well, the way i think about it well exactly and in a way it's exciting to to imagine the other side of this 
So, yes. right. So we sort of imagine that cities might have to run a really high fever for a while and right. And be yes. sick. But then when that fever breaks, it just looks like a whole new world order will be on the other side and, and prices that we haven't seen in, in, in decades in some cases. Right. I, I, it's, it, it'll, I think cities are going to provide, you know, you know, over the next five to 10 years, a unique opportunity to people that haven't experienced it. Um, uh, and I'm excited about the things that could happen you know, in terms of, you know, sort of reinventing cities. It's, um, it's just, there's a lot of pain that will be suffered in the interim. And that's what we're in the middle of right now, or I don't know if we're in the middle, but we're entering uh, yeah. this, this period. I, th- I think it's not a year or two, I think it's five to 10 years. And one example would be if you have a bunch of, a landlord has a bunch of tents in their building and they have 10 or 15 years left on their lease, which was signed before the pandemic, the landlord isn't feeling the full pain of the the drop in rates. And actually when you, you know, whenever you read about the office market and, you know, the brokerage community is the one that sort of presents the numbers, there's never any discussion about prices. It's all about leasing activity. And it's not about prices, whereas in residential, it's all of, you know, prices yeah. are probably overemphasized. Yeah, no, 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 I, I agree. And and as as we say, I, I think on the other side of this is a, is a brave new world that I think is going to be very exciting for cities and I think is going to yes. cause a huge return. It sounds like you feel that way, too. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that has come up as sort of a quick fix has been the idea of converting to residential. Right. and. Uh, and so to most developers that I've talked to and most coverage of this topic, you know, here we have uh, a less affordable residential market, and then we have a commercial market with high vacancy. So it seems like a perfect fit, right? You could just convert a commercial office building and make it a residential rental or condo. The core problem is the conversion to residential CFO is problematic in most markets, number one. Number two, you have to do this with the lender who has the building as collateral. Now you're changing the use of it. So that, and you have tight credit conditions. Uh, so that seems very problematic. And the third and probably most important point is the footprint of buildings are so large that it's very difficult to create and very expensive to create an apartment that's not you know, like, uh, you know, 20 by 200 you know, as a, in a in a shape, um, you know, no light and air. So I think that's really problematic. And again, I, I don't see that as sort of a quick fix to this, even though it sounds appealing on the outside. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a it's a it's a host of challenges, and and so much is going to have to change. I'm wondering what should we be looking at, and and what with with all that you're looking at, what are you seeing? that would be meaningful to to our audience of interior designers and people who are looking at more of the high-end real estate market? I think to try, you know, when you're looking at like getting a sense or a pulse of the market, you want to really go as local as you can. That's number one. And then the other thing is um, when you think about the strength of a housing market, I would pay much more attention to sales and inventory levels or trends than I would to prices. 
price trends are the caboose on the end of the train if trains still had cabooses. <laughs> and they're the sort of when the dust settles, this is what the price is. But really, uh, sales and inventory tell you where things are going. So look at the current market. We have prices starting to rise again after slipping a bit from single digit from the peak of last year as rates doubled, prices are rising. But actually, you know, transaction volume is way below normal. Right. And so pricing is certainly important. Um, but in terms of understanding trends, I think it takes a back seat to actual transaction activity. So much of what designers want to know is we we had this so much movement during COVID. So many people were buying new houses and the right and the demand was booming. And that, as we talked about, that sort of calmed down for for a time. And now everyone's adjusting. To your point, we'd, we'd love to see rates just sort of stabilize at whatever level so that people can right. adjust to, to what they are. And eventually, more sellers will return to the market. They, they have to for various reasons and life events and other things. Life changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to your point, everybody wanted to say, oh, my God, the housing boom is on again because we saw prices coming up a little bit. Uh, and and the home builders certainly feel like they're in a boom cycle. And, and they probably are for the next few years because there's such limited supply, right? Agreed. Yeah. I mean, uh, I call it the pandemic housing boom. Mm -hmm. It was the biggest housing boom of the modern era. And think about what actually happened. So after the dust settled on this, rates are higher, it's a different market. If you could describe what happened, I would say that low mortgage rates made housing less affordable, which kind of makes your brain crack when you <laughs> think about that. Uh, but essentially what it did is it obliterated listing inventory. It wiped it clean off the map till there was virtually you know, very little nominal. Yes. But my takeaway from that is Waiting for mortgage rates to fall is not a good investment of your time. It's a misnomer to sort of hyper-focus on that. Really think about the fact that, you know, inventory and supply is like this sort of organic thing that is based on the, the life patterns of the occupants of the house or the property. Mm. You know, empty nesters, downsizing. So, and then on top of that, the economy is so robust that the Fed is trying to damage it. They're trying to hit it with a baseball bat and cause damage. And that's one of the things we saw in the banking crisis several months ago was SVB and First Republic, you know, where they got caught in the sort of in a bad position and are gone. Right. Yeah. And so the way I look at this is you should just relax, focus on sort of transaction volume and inventory. I hate to be sort of repeating the point, but it it is so far off the conversation. It's all about price. Right. Um, price is not an indicator of sort of the strength or health of a housing market. And do you think that it's time alone is what's going to bring that supply back to the market? It's sure feeling like it. You know, you could say which seems impossible. If rates fell a lot, then that would bring more sellers into the market because they have to buy something, right? But the reality is that rates don't seem like they're 
going to fall in the near future because the economy is so robust. And frankly, it's kind of amazing to have as much activity as we have, considering how much more expensive uh, financing is compared to a year ago. And that's because the economy is uh, inherently robust. Um, it's certainly weakening, um, but you know, unemployment itself at three and a half percent is just something that the Fed is not being able to damage, which is seems like the whole point of this effort to raise rates. Well, and to your earlier point about the low rates creating higher prices in the in the housing market, what's also creating these artificially high prices is this lack of supply. And right. you know, a number that I know you don't put any stock in whatsoever, the the Zillow Zestimate numbers. <laughs> um, but but Zillow wanted to be sure that I knew that my house had gone up, wait for it, 27% this past month, Jonathan. Yeah. I am right. hundreds of thousands of dollars richer than I was last time I spoke to you. You feel paper. flush. I do. I feel like, <laughs> oh my God, why why am I not out there with the high rollers? Well, that's that's the thing, you know, uh the Zestimate, you know, we basically Basically, uh, you know, when we were looking for a house about a year ago this time, a little bit of uh, last May or June, I believe, you know, we were looking at Zillow every day. You know, we were getting the new listings coming on. and But it, it's sort of silly. Like when you look at his estimate, the national accuracy rate, it, it's a median accuracy rate is 2%. So that means half the time, the estimate is within 2% of the actual value and half the time it's not. Now, they they don't hide that, but no one understands what median is, right? Yeah. But it gets better. It's only within 2% if the property is listed for sale. If it's not listed for sale, then the median accident rate is 7%, which means that the half the time it's within 7% and half the time it's not. And so the irony is to get that 5% improvement from seven to two, they actually need the brokers to price the property, <laughs> uh, which is like this sort of, you know, an example of like where technology is solving a problem that didn't exist. I, I just find that uh, fascinating because they're, they're being very transparent, but no one understands what median accuracy rate means. So I shouldn't get overly excited about the, about the 27% jump in the, in the value of my home in the past month. No, I mean, I get email from my house that I bought last August, and it's like, I think one month I, I, my house was worth like $57 more. It was just some like the level of precision that is uh, reflected in those numbers does not exist. Um, and I think that's the basically the way to think of it. Is there any part of the market, is there any region that is surprising you with what's going on there? I mean, to your point about, of course, there's no national real estate market. Is are there pockets that are interesting or surprising to you as you look at them? Well, so not geographic. I mean, we could talk about Florida. You know, is is restructuring with work from home and the shift to the Sun Belt. But but I look at it basically on um, price tranches. That the higher you go up to a certain region level that still relative to the overall market activity, while it is certainly declined like everything else, is faring better 
than lower price tranches, meaning, and I think that has something to do with work from home and more cash buyers and all that sort of thing. And I, I think that trend probably holds a bit because the economy itself is pretty robust in general. You know, I, I guess the way I think of it is it's less bad. <laughs> it's less weak relative to the overall market. As you skew higher in price, it seems to be outperforming. And it's been that way for the for the last year, you know, as rates have been rising. Yeah. It's going to be hard to get uh, those employment numbers, those unemployment numbers higher uh, as they seem to want to. And it also seems like America just loves to move around and buy new homes and it right. It's well, well, it's interesting because if you look at the long-term sort of mobility rate of homeowners. It's been falling for like 30 years. Like we're less mobile than we were because of work for home now. Yeah. It's more like when you talk about buying more homes, it's more about there's more buying second homes. Yes. Uh, you know, co-primary as I dubbed it, or uh vacation homes. Like that has been the expansion of sort of home sales, I think, that accounting for home sales over the last, you know, 10. 20 years. Um, and I think the uh, the housing, uh, or we'll call it the pandemic or a housing boom, um, sort of exacerbated that to a greater degree, because you threw in like the safety component, where, you know, I'm, I don't want to sell my place in the city, but I want a place two hours away in the country or whatever. Um, there's been a lot of that. I don't think that's really going away. Because work from home, I don't think is going away. I think the the toothpaste is out of the tube or whatever, the, <laughs> uh, whatever, where the genie's out of the bottle or whatever, it's hard to go back. Well, uh, JP Morgan and, and Goldman Sachs want it to go away, but I don't think they're going to win this one. I, I don't No, They, uh, I think right out of the gate, the uh, investment banks, wall street were basically demanding, you know, their employees return five days a week. And, um, and they had to stop doing that, pushing that because People just quit. <laughs> they went somewhere else, <laughs> uh, which you know won't last forever in that context. But um, by then, I think you know it's there's been such a long period here, three or four years, of people getting used to the routine. It almost seems like you need another seismic event to undo that and bring people back to the office in the same way they were before. That's what people think a recession will do. People think a recession is going to make people feel like they need to be back in the office. Right. They need so, FaceTime right? with their boss. Yes. They need FaceTime yes. with their boss. And listen, I can see that on the margin, but I don't see that you know, as a sort of fundamental shift or change. In fact, in a recession, you got to think that companies are going to cut costs slash costs. Yeah. They're going to reduce their office space. Right. Um, right. So, so it's, yeah, but we'll see. I mean, it's, it's a, I think we have five to 10 years to, to learn what will happen. <laughs> well, I mean, between the commercial real estate over the next five to 10 years, right. And this working yeah. from home and this, I mean, there are so many things coming out of this pandemic that, as you say, over the, over the next decade, I think our, our lives and, and our worlds are just going to look and feel so very different. Well, the other thing, you know, yeah, your patterns are changing and evolving and uh, sort of the old rules don't necessarily apply. I mean, not that everything is wiped clean and we're starting fresh, but it really, it, it's probably one of the biggest sort of socioeconomic events of our lifetime. And 
I don't think it just goes away. I think I think there's some permanent uh, impact that will be here, you know, a decade from now. No, I I completely agree. And then never mind the the giant wealth transfer that one day is also going to happen. Yeah. That's going to coincide with all of this too. Which right. will right, which will have its own, uh, which will have its own changes. Uh, it's it's always great to talk to you, Jonathan, and and hear your perspective. I I, I so appreciate it. I very much enjoy the conversation, Dennis. Thank you. Okay, so we're getting to the end of the show here, but before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye, Fred. Well, Dennis, I have appeared on another podcast. <laughs> I know, Fred, you cheated on me, and, it, you know, it was hard for me. I'm not going to lie. It was at a party. It happened so fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I, there, there's a great design podcast called, it's got a great name, too, The Hot Young Designers Club. Now you see why I said yes to appearing on it, because yeah, no, of the name. I, this was what but, I was yeah. afraid of. You were going to see some hot young designer podcast. And... But it's it sincerely is a very good show. It's done by these two designers, uh, Rebecca and Sean, and they have a great, it's, it's a very real show, right? They get into the nitty gritty and talk about like what, what it's really like, and I went on the show. Don't worry, I plugged the Thursday show, but it was really fun. <laughs> and uh, if you want to, if you want to hear me without this guy, this Dennis Scully on the line, the ball and chain. Yeah, you know, if you want to hear Fred yeah. Unleashed, check out check yeah. out Hot Young Designers Club uh, <laughs> wherever you get your pods. What about you? Anything catch your eye this week, Dennis? And it was a good show, by the way. Uh, highly enjoyable, and and Fred was uh, Fred was great. And they have such a great energy, and as you say, they're they're very real and down to earth. And uh, so it's a it's a good listen. I wanted to give a shout out to friend of the show uh, Keisha Franklin of Holden Interior who listeners might remember we interviewed back when we were at the Kipps Bay Showhouse. Keisha did the second floor space there and was one of the big highlights of the house. And at the time that we were with her, I I talked about the fact that I really hoped that this was going to change her life, participating in the Kipps Bay Showhouse. And Keisha posted recently about opening her new office started her business 12 years ago at her dining room table and now there is a canopy Halden is actually her grandfather's name there's a there's an awning up that with uh, her grandfather's name and and the firm has a, a location and address in Montclair New Jersey and it's a huge step for her and very exciting and so I just wanted to give her a shout out and congratulate her and wish her all good things I really hope wonderful things are coming for her bravo here here yeah no absolutely all right that's all the time we have today Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news in the design industry, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Lizzie Reisinger and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.